Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Talia Lakshmi Kuluri about her story, The Good Donkey, which appeared in issue 21 of The Common. Talia Lakshmi Kuluri's fiction has appeared in the Minnesota Review, Ecotone, and the Southern Humanities Review. She was born and raised in Northern California and now lives in the Central Valley, where she is at work on a collection of short stories and a novel. Talia, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Would you set the scene for our conversation, just describe where you're living, where you're calling from, and what it's like there? Yes. um, I am currently living in Fresno, California, which is right in the middle of California's beautiful Central Valley. Um, It's a a city in an agricultural community. It's very hot. We're in the peak summer at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. We're hitting our, I think, 113 degrees coming up over the next few days. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's summery and it's warm, but it's also a really um, beautiful place to live. So um, I'm here at home. That sounds so great. I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read the, the first few paragraphs for us? Absolutely. And this is the opening of the story. I am not pleased. Paint is dripping down my hoof and the colors are muddled together. I shouldn't complain. I agreed to it, of course. Hafiz is putting together a zoo and he asked me to be the zebra. You're a very good donkey, Habibi, he told me three days ago, but the border is closed and everyone says prices for using the smuggling tunnels have gone up. I can't afford the zebra in Damascus and the one in Cairo is twice that price. He gestured wildly, scattering my oats. What a waste. I don't know much about borders, but I would do anything for Hafiz. He is more than a father to me. And so here I am, Hafiz painting me in black and white stripes. He has hung two torches from the ceiling with strings to use when the power is cut, and the one above me swings gently, pitching its light back and forth and making me dizzy. Hafiz has stopped in the middle, and knowing him, the paint will dry unevenly, and I will look awful. And then what kind of zebra will I be? 
Thanks for reading that. That was such a great reading. For our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you describe what the piece is about? Yeah. um, So it's set in Gaza City. And our main human character is Hafiz, and he is putting together a zoo in functionally his hometown. Um, And he has a family donkey who he calls Habibi, which means beloved. And uh, he's not able to bring in a lot of the animals that um, would normally be in a zoo, including a zebra. And so he decides to paint his donkey with zebra stripes and have him pose as a donkey in the zoo. And so what he does is he he starts to acquire um, some animals, but the sort of opening of the story is when two lions are brought to his home that he can put in the zoo. They've been rescued. Um, and so the lions and Habibi the donkey become friends. Um, what happens that – can I tell everything that happens? It's totally up to you. <laughs> okay. So what happens next is um, – they are uh, subject to airstrikes and airstrikes end up striking the zoo um, and affecting both uh, Habibi and the lions that live there and also the animals in the zoo. And it exposes some um, circumstances about their lives in Gaza City and also their relationship um, between Hafiz and his donkey. I won't spoil it too much for readers. I hope you will read to find out what happens at the end, but um it's a it's an examination of both their life together, their life in Gaza City, and what it means to be an animal in a zoo. That that's a great a great summary. I certainly hope that everyone who has not read it yet will read it. Um, I love this story. Thank you so much. I, I would love to hear how you came to write it. Like, what inspired you to start work on it? What was that process like? So I have always really been interested in how animals view the world that they live in from their perspective. And when I find myself reading stories in the news that feature animals, the first question I always ask myself is, well, what do the animal think of that? And animals don't speak English or whatever the journalistic language is for that piece. And so they're never interviewed. And so what I'm always doing is I'm imagining the answer for myself. So for this piece, there were three different um, news items that made me very curious. Um, There was a story from um, airstrikes on the Gaza Zoo in 2014, um, where the um, man who owned and ran the zoo had been unable to feed his animals after a series of airstrikes. Um, They had all been smuggled in, and the animals unfortunately didn't make it. But because it is still a community with families living there and so forth, um, he tried to preserve the zoo experience through um, taxidermy to the extent he was able. Um, That is a feature of this story. Mm -hmm. Um, The second piece that inspired me was about a zoo called the Happy Land Zoo, also in Gaza City, where it was from the the Guardian. And that story came out around 2008, 2009. Um, And there was a painted donkey painted to look like a zebra, again, um, because the um, family who ran the zoo was not able to bring in a zebra, but they tried to recreate the experience. And then the last story that I, I used as inspiration was from 2007. And it was a story about two lions that had been stolen. Um, and then, um, people from Hamas actually found the lions and returned them to the zoo. And they had been, um, well, found one lion. One lion had been kidnapped and the remainder, the other lion had remained at the zoo. So Hamas had found the lion that had been stolen, returned her to the zoo. And I, I uh, used those two lions from that story as the model for the lions in my story. I used their same names. Um, but those three stories about um, 
animal experiences in this particular region got me so curious about what they thought of it. And so I tried to answer that question for myself using all three of those um, pieces of news. That is so interesting to hear how how the news sort of informed it and it came together like from different pieces of news. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's that's really interesting. I don't see that a lot in 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 writing. We don't read a lot of pieces in the submission queue from the perspective of animals. I think it's relatively rare. And, you know, often the ones we do read aren't aren't terribly successful, but I think the success of this piece comes from how charming the donkey's voice is as a narrator. And I'm I'm sure our listeners got a sense of that when you were reading. There's something sweet and kind of childlike about him. He doesn't always understand everything that's happening around him. But there's also so much depth and real emotion and, and longing to his to his personality. And those things come come so much from his voice and his interiority. So they feel natural. They're not, you know, forced or anything like that. Uh, can you talk about finding the donkey's point of view and how you went about writing it, like getting into his voice? Yeah. I um so I anytime I write from an animal's perspective, including this donkey, I do a lot of research on animal behavior. So I spend a lot of time trying to find out like, what do donkeys do? What do what do they seem to like? Are, are there circumstances where people who live with or have donkeys have a sort of relationship or friendship with the animal they live with? And, um, and I also infuse some of myself into those animals. In a lot of ways, um, I, I think that it can be a filter for me to kind of explore my own emotions um, and my own feelings about relationships. But I also, I, I guess I just really feel very strongly that um, all living creatures have a perspective and they have their own thoughts and feelings and complex inner lives. And so um, in a lot of ways, it's just a leap of imagination. Um, I try to imagine that I have the, the, the limits of a donkey's understanding and I have the environment that a donkey would live with. And then I try to extrapolate what that means to me. There, there's a little bit of um, guidance I think of from a from a teacher I had um, at a workshop many many years ago. I was fortunate enough to take a workshop with Anthony Dore, wonderful teacher. I in love addition him. to one of the writers, <laughs> exceptional writer, really wonderful and generous teacher. And one of the and I took an animal narrated story to my workshop with him. And one of the things he talked about was sort of the um, process of defamiliarization, which I use a little bit um, sparingly because you don't want to make it so focused on describing unfamiliar things that it becomes disorienting for the reader. But it helps me um, take myself out of my human perspective um, and think about how something would look to just a slightly off off kilter perspective. It's it's hard it's hard for me to explain. It's just that um it's human adjacent, I think, when you have especially an animal like a donkey or maybe a dog or a cat where they they live with humans, so they have a human adjacent understanding, mm-hmm. but with their own values and their own levels of importance um, imposed upon those items or circumstances. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, you know, I've, I read some of the other stories that you've published from the perspectives of animals. Um, and I'm wondering, like, are they all from a larger collection? Is this something that's sort of ongoing for you? Yes, yes, they are. I'm writing a, a full collection of animal narrated stories. Most of them are from the uh, first person perspective. And I'm trying to cover 
um, as many continents as possible and get sort of a broad range of both wild um, and working and domesticated animals to kind of um, show the gamut. So yes, it is definitely part of a larger collection. It's um, It's been the style of writing that I find um, calls to me the most and I'm drawn to the most. So um, I'm writing a collection. I'll probably keep writing them past the collection being finished. Um, there's, there's, I don't, I don't think there's any shortage of stories about the, um, the natural world, um, for me, for me to draw from. I think that it's a, it's an endless, endless well. Do you think uh, the way you described being sort of inspired by like stories that you read in the news and wondering about the animal's perspective, is, is that often how you get into these stories? Like, are they often inspired by news stories or are some of them sort of from other, from other areas? Yeah, so uh, they are a lot of times inspired by something I read about in environmental coverage, but also generally speaking, if I have an interest in a certain kind of animal, I will look for just information to learn about them. Um, For a really long time, I was very interested in wolves, and I still am. And so I would just get into a Google and I would search wolves, and I'd say, "Well, what's 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 coming up here?" And I and I'm I've been in that way, able to just kind of submerge myself in different um, sort of environmental study areas. And that sometimes generates um, a narrative. I think one of the pieces I've written deals with a polar bear, and I don't really have a news story about a polar bear that I was using as a source other than, you know, general climate change and Mm. um, environmental impacts of humanity at large. Um, so sometimes they're not inspired by a, a particular news piece. Um, sometimes they're just inspired by a general environment. And then I try to ask myself, what is happening for those animals in that environment? That makes sense. I'm just thinking back to what you were saying about um, like defamiliarizing things, like making things feel a little strange, but not too strange for, for the reader. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I, I said that we do sometimes get stories from animals' perspectives. And I think that Maybe that's in one way where they go wrong that they try try to do that a little too much because I think there's something there can't be something kind of kind of gimmicky about it if it's done too yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. I've I have a lot of writing partners that I work with, and sometimes one of the notes I get is, "Well, uh, uh, whatever animal wouldn't say this," and sometimes I have to step back from that a little bit because first of all, they don't speak English, <laughs> and so the fact that they've written a story is already asking the reader to make a leap. So I try to be a little bit judicious and I, and I like to trust the readers enough to, to know that they can set aside some of their concerns about would a donkey know anything about this? Um, and, and I can, I can, uh, maybe create a spectrum of understanding and choose what I want to defamiliarize and what I want to leave as acceptable. Yeah, you know, on that topic, I think one of the interesting things about this story, I don't know if you often do this or if it's kind of unique to this story, but uh, the fact that that the donkey and Hafiz can speak to each other, like they both understand each other and can can speak. And I think in some stories that would be like, you know, people would just put it down the second the animal talked or the second yeah. the human understood. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think, you know, their relationship is so strong that it, it it doesn't seem surprising when you get to the part where you realize they can speak to each other. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, like the donkey's voice is so, so established, you know, we're so instantly in his voice that I think it feels, it feels acceptable for them to be communicating. Is, is that something that happens in a lot of your stories or is that sort of unique? So I only have a few pieces so far that have 
humans. And this is the one that probably has the strongest human animal relationship. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think, um, for me, that's partly because, um, the way I wanted the characters to be written was that they started this experience as a twosome and then expanded to include other animals. And so I wanted them to have a partnership and I wanted, um, I wanted them to survive something together and I wanted them to rely on each other. And I, I took inspiration also from how I feel about pets, for example. Um, I don't know how other pet people feel, but, um, I think that when you have a pet live with a pet, it's a friendship in a lot of ways. And there's a, there's a closer relationship between the human and the pet, um, than would otherwise be between a human and another animal. And so I, I took that as sort of a baseline for closeness. And I just, when I wrote it, I just had them talk to each other and I didn't feel any discomfort with that approach. So I kept it. And I think that that helps, um, establish their bond, and and I think that that was important for the story. Yeah, absolutely. I I love the moment. I think one of my favorite moments is when the donkey asks Hafiz whether whether he has parents, not like where are my parents, but but did I have parents? Which is an idea that sort of the lions have given him. The lions have asked the donkey where his parents are, and he realizes that he doesn't even know. Um, can you talk a little bit about creating that moment, like putting that together? Yeah, um, that was actually a moment that came in revision. Um, oh, awesome. when I was, yeah, it was, um, I, I want to talk just for a second about how wonderful the editorial process is. And I have to um, add my thanks to Jennifer Acker for being such a wonderful editor. Um, one of the things that she asked me to do is to provide more context about the circumstances in Gaza City while um, Habibi is at the zoo and and what their lives are like. And I I was struggling a little bit with how to convey that within the confines of a donkey's understanding because they will have a limited understanding of the human world. So I used that conversation as a way to convey their circumstances. And so Habibi asks about his own parents, uh, which leads to a question about Hafiz's parents, which leads to a conversation about the circumstances of family separation for Hafiz and other families in um, between Gaza and the West Bank. Mm-hmm. So it, it, uh, it allowed both a revealing of context and also um, for Habibi to engage in a conversation about belonging and what does it mean to have family and what is family. Um, and all of those questions are kind of introduced through that conversation. But that was, that was a wonderful editorial process because it, it um, helped me find uh, a, a window for adding depth, which was really wonderful. That's so, it's so nice to hear that that came out in revision. Cause I think, you know, so often some of our favorite scenes are like scenes that were there from the very beginning, but I love the idea that like my favorite scene from the story came in, came in at a later stage. That's really interesting. Yeah. I love revision. I think that's a, it's a really neat, neat process. I'm trying to learn to love it. <laughs> it's not my natural state of being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you a little bit about that editorial process. Um, you mentioned working on revisions to the story with our editor-in-chief, Jennifer Acker, and, and I know she really enjoyed working on it. And of course, I, you know, I read an earlier version and then I reread this, this, you know, newer version of it. Would you talk a little bit about that process, whether that's working with Jen or, or just how the story changed from your first draft, how you revised it before submitting it until this sort of final product. 
Yeah, um, it's been through a lot of changes. Um, I have a local writing group that I work with here at home, um, and it had a um, it was a lot more stream of consciousness when I took it to my writing group. Um, and th- I think that one of the things that um, one of the notes I received was was from my friends was really to assist with the timeline and help people understand what was happening. Um, and then when I took it to, um, submission, it was, um, substantially in the form it's in now. Um, Jennifer's revisions were probably the revision process with Jennifer was probably where, um, the most significant changes happened between when I worked with my group and, and, um, ultimate publication. And I think, um, what, it was really sort of a great way to, for me to kind of examine one of the challenges that comes with writing from an animal perspective is it's always possible to limit yourself too much by focusing on the fact that you're writing from an animal's perspective. And I, it's that same balance of defamiliarization. I was often asking myself, well, would a donkey really understand this? Would a donkey really know this? But if I limited myself so much that, um, that I omitted context because a donkey wouldn't understand or wouldn't know how to explain it, then, then the story kind of loses its orientation. Um, so I went through a couple of drafts, um, with Jennifer, which was a really great process. Um, she's a, in my opinion, a very generous, um, editor and, um, provides a lot of really great guidance and notes without being very prescriptive. So it was mostly questions of like, I need more context here. Can you cut this here? As is this part necessary? I'm not clear here. And so I was able to, it was, I was able to shape the story a lot more um, with her guidance. But yeah, it, it was pr- primarily tied towards adding context and um, and and depth to the the circumstances that both both characters are living in. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but I'm sure you're right that there's like a a, a very tricky balancing act between trying to be realistic about what a donkey might quote unquote know, but you know, wanting to have the larger context and wanting to have some, you know, some understanding in the story. You know, I think sometimes you encounter that when people are writing stories from the perspectives of children. And I think that there's maybe some similarity there and like that they, they fully understand the vibe that is happening around them and the, and like the um, circumstances, but they might not fully understand the sort of general causes that are the the history. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it is actually very, in my opinion, probably very, I've never written from a perspective of a child, but I'm, I'm guessing it is probably very similar. There's a restriction. Um, I actually find that restriction helpful to me too, though, um, because I'm a little bit of a kitchen sink person. And so if I put (laughs) everything in the story, it can be overwhelming. And this is a good way for me to have a framework of restraint. So, um, I have to pick and choose what I will put in. That's great. That makes perfect sense. I definitely understand that part of it. Yeah. You submitted this story uh, back in 2019, and I think I, I first read it in 2020. Um, it was originally flagged in the in the submission queue by our former fiction editor, Megan Tucker-Oranger, and then um, Jennifer, as you said, worked on edits with you. Uh, but this this year in May, there was renewed violence between Israel and Palestine, You know, some really aggressive um, airstrikes of the Gaza Strip, which is something, like you said, that happens in this story that we see in the story. And so when I reread this piece now, it it really struck me how sort of endless and ongoing the conflict feels in this story. 
could you talk a little bit about giving Hafiz and his donkey this sort of history that makes it feel like a lifelong conflict that continues both sort of before and after the story? Yeah. Um, I think that when I, when I thought about the context and when I first came to writing the piece, I think one of the things that, um, that I held in my mind was that this is a, this is a place where people live. And, um, I think in the United States media, when we see coverage, we frequently see coverage of conflicts and of airstrikes and of what each side is doing from a military perspective. Um, And then I think that sort of gives less time to um, the fact that there are still birthdays and there are still meals to be cooked and dentists to go to and shopping to do and school to attend and babies being born and weddings happening and all of the features of life that occur in a place um, are sort of the spine of life in the area. So I wanted to, to, to remember that as I was writing that this is, this is just a, this is a place where lots of life is happening um, alongside the the conflicts. So one of the things that I did is I read a, a book that um, I would recommend to everyone. It's called The Drone Eats With Me by Atif Abu Saif. It's published by Kama Press out of the UK. It's a it's a diary of um, of this writer's time during uh, a period of significant um, airstrikes in Gaza City. So he describes what his life is like and on a daily basis. And, you know, he's a father and he has friends that he meets with in the evening and he has a place where he lives with his family and the regular business of daily life to attend to. So I, I read that, um, to, to have a better understanding of what that is like and what that sort of low, not low, but sort of hum of, um, externally imposed, um, conflict, does to a daily life. Because most people who live in any area that's experiencing um, war or um, escalations leading to war or any kind of militarized conflict, most of the people who are experiencing the effects of that are not participating. They're just doing the things that all of us do, trying to gather with friends and have meals and that sort of thing. So I wanted these two characters to... um, to be able to demonstrate both the ordinary and the extraordinary. And the challenge there, of course, is that that's not my experience. And so I am very much writing outside my experience. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really important to me to write it in a way that was not holding itself out as being the representative experience of a person living in Gaza, um, because that's, that's really not my story to write. Um, Mm -hmm. But I wanted to, I wanted to still, answer the question for myself of what it would be like for this donkey, which was the first question I started with when I read about a donkey being painted like a zebra. Right. Um, so, so I use that as a, as a window to write um, a story set there. That's, that's adjacent to the human experience, but not directly representative of the human experience. And that's so cha- I think writing outside your experience is very, very challenging. S- many writers have, um, opined on how to do it well. Alexander Chi has a wonderful essay about um, writing outside your experience. And I think the um, 
the challenge is always to to do what you can to do it well and to avoid the um, the issue of tr- of making your work the representative work when it is not your experience. So that was that was kind of a challenge. But I did also read um, another book set actually in the West Bank. Um, it's another nonfiction book. It's called Palestinian Walks: Forays into a Vanishing Landscape, and that's by Raja Shahadi. Mm-hmm. So that was. Um, I read those two books as a way to sort of gain um, some understanding of a first person perspective of someone who lives in either one of those areas. And I think probably that's the key when you're writing about an area that um, either you are not from or that is experiencing a very specific kind of um, tension or conflict or war is to read read the writers from there and to um, read the writers from there first is probably um, how how I, I did my best to get there. That's so interesting. I'm, I'm sure that that is more research than, than most people put into their short stories, but, you know, it absolutely shows. It's really, really interesting what you're saying. Like, I think you're, you're right that because of the way we consume news that we, we sort of hear about this conflict from a, a very top down, like literally what's falling from the sky, what's being done in the sky and not so much what's happening on the ground. Um, uh, I'm excited about your book recommendations. I'm going to link those in the show notes so people can check them out if they want to. Oh, awesome. Um, you've written about being mixed race and, and feeling like there isn't always room for people from mixed backgrounds and conversations about race and identity in the U.S. Is that something that you're trying to tackle in your own writing? Do you think books and media can make more space for those conversations? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so I think that when I when I think about the um, the kind of space that is made for the mixed experience and how it's a little bit narrow, I think that that probably for me comes from um, the sort of short form conversations that don't leave a lot of room for nuance. I do think literature is a great space to explore the mixed experience. And I think uh, there are a lot of writers today that I know of that are, that are writing around and toward and from that experience. Um, there's a wonderful writer named Heidi Duro who actually started a conference called the Mixed Remixed Festival that I've attended before. And she writes about that experience. Um, my very dear friend, Jenny McFarland, wrote a book called The House of Deep Water that came out last year that tackles both the mixed experience and like family trauma. And there's Donna Muscolta. She's a Washington State-based writer who writes towards that. There's a, a memoir that came out a couple of years ago by T. Kira Madden that yeah. she's a writer, um, Behold the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, which is amazing. So I think there are a lot of writers that that really tackle um, both the mixed experience plus all of the other things that come with a life in their long form work. So memoirs and novels, poetry, all of those things are great, um, really wonderful ways to explore um, all of those questions. And I think that um, that I do that in my own writing in the sense that um, I think I, I like to ask questions of about belonging and identity and um, what does it mean to be from somewhere and what is it um, what does it mean to connect to the, the place you are in versus the place where your heritage is from all of those questions are kind of held in my mind as I write but I but I do write from an animal perspective so what that does is it gives me um, a little bit of distance so I can use that as a filter 
to explore my own feelings about my personal identity and um, and how I frame that in my own mind, which I think is to me an important examination to have because all writing in a lot of ways is part of this examination of the self. Who am I and how do I fit in the world around me? So I love what the filter of um, animal writing does for me. And then I get to use it as a dual purpose, which is I do get to discuss and examine um, environmentalism and conservation and humanity's impact on our environment, which to me feels like very, very urgent work. Mm -hmm. I get a dual purpose um, out of that approach. And I'm so excited I get to talk about it because I I hardly have to explain why I do this. But I, um, I think... Also, um, I, I mean, I can't speak for every person who has a mixed background, but there's a lot about it that um, feels like you live in sort of a liminal space. You know, you um, you belong to multiple communities that may not be aligned with each other. Um, you may have uh, both, in my case, history of a ethnic heritage from a colonized country and a colonized country and those <laughs> those two things can live in the same body which can be um, disorienting but also lead to a lot of questions that you will ask about yourself and what it means to belong somewhere and and what it means to identify with one or more heritages so those are huge questions that I think I probably will spend the rest of my life trying to answer for myself um, but I think fiction for me is a wonderful um, way to explore my just my sense of self. Thanks so much for explaining that. I, I was wondering if there, if you did feel that there was some kind of connection between writing from an animal perspective and sort of fitting yourself into different identities and fiction. So I, I'm really interested to hear about that. Yeah. Yeah. When you're not writing, you're working full-time as a public sector attorney. How do you balance those two things? How do you make time and like that, that huge emotional space it takes to write? Oh gosh, you know, I sometimes I feel like I don't balance it very well. Um, that's always a big struggle. Um, so one of the things that that I remind myself is that, you know, a lot of people who are either in academia or are able to write um, a little bit more full time than I am, there's there's often this advice you hear, which is that writers write every day. And I will tell all writers, it is okay if you don't write every day because I'm not able to. Um, sometimes I'm too tired. Sometimes I had a really long day and then a bunch of meetings at night and I don't get home till eight o'clock and I'm just too tired to do it. So what I like to do is I, I actually keep a little book with me at all times, like a little notebook. And I like them to be small because for some reason, like I can, well, I can fill the pages up faster. So that feels like I've accomplished a lot. <laughs> and sometimes if I, throughout the day, if I have an idea, I just write it down and it's like one sentence, but that counts, that counts as writing. Um, and, and so one of the pieces I actually did like that, I just wrote like a sentence or two on a post-it note and I would stick them in this little book and then I'd write other notes. And then over the course of like several months, I suddenly had just so much material for a complete story that it was very easy to put together. Um, so sometimes I write incrementally. Um, sometimes I spend my time on research. Um, it's a lot of like evenings and weekends is sort of how I fit that sort of thing in. Or um, I will go for periods of time where I don't, I don't have the time and space to commit to writing. And then so then I will choose a time in the future. Like I'll take 
a long weekend and I will, I will commit that to some creative work, but I, I try to incorporate maybe if I can't do substantive creative on the page drafting, then I do research to support an idea I have, or I do revision. Um, I will say my writing group, local writing group really helps keep me on track because we meet monthly now. We actually, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we started meeting monthly by zoom. Mm -hmm. And so having a meeting coming up, if, you know, if I go too many meetings without something to contribute, I feel guilty. So then I put something (laughs) together and I turn it in. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think any, any person who's balancing a full-time job plus a creative life, um, you just write when you can and, and you try to protect your free time. Um, I try to um, avoid working on the weekends at my day job <laughs> so that I can have my weekends for my creative life. That is certainly a good rule of thumb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I The writing every day thing, you know, sometimes I can do it, sometimes I can't, but I, I do sometimes, I, you know, I know that advice comes from a good place where people are saying like, uh, stop making it such a, a magical thing that you need hours and hours to do and just make it like sort of part of your everyday, everyday life. But I also feel like it maybe focuses too much on like volume and quantity for, yeah. for, for what a creative act writing is and how much time you really need to spend, you know, reading other books or, yeah. you know, researching or thinking while you're in the shower or while you're walking your dog, like all of those things count. And they might even be more important than forcing yourself to sit down and write every day. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I call that marinating. So sometimes (laughs) I have to marinate an idea. Yeah. I I think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always love to hear craft advice from, from writers, especially writers who don't have an MFA. Um, you know, I don't have an MFA and I think that there's, um, there might be people listening who are interested in sort of advice on how to sort of go it alone or, or how you've developed your craft without going to a traditional program. Do you have any advice for them on that? Oh yeah. Um, I'm so glad you asked this because when I first started, um, trying to take my writing very seriously. I was worried that I I don't have an MFA. Should I get one? Do I need to quit my job? Do I need to go? Mm -hmm. Um, And and I've I've found that um, if a person has the means to go to an MFA and they really want one, I would say absolutely go do it, but it's not required. Um, There are a lot of ways to connect with the literary community. I, um, for me... Um, I've done a lot of reading. And so one of the differences between my experience and an MFA experience is I don't have a curriculum that I'm working with. So I just read whatever interests me, which means I read a lot of work in translation. I read a lot of um, books that that I hear about on social media. I follow a lot of writers on social media. I think um, Twitter has actually been a pretty cool place as far as finding writers um, to follow. And then they, they talk about what they're reading or what they're excited about or what they're researching or what they're working on. And it can be a great window into the professional literary community. The other thing that I found helpful was, um, a summer, a summer workshop that I've attended several times. So I've been to the Tin House summer writers workshop four times. That's great. It's a lot. Um, and I first went because my husband suggested he found it and he said, you should apply for this. And I said, Oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get into that. That's no way. And he's like, well, just apply, like, see what happens. You don't know. So I applied and I got in and I thought, wow, this is really cool. Like there are people here that also write and they're also beginners. This is wonderful. So I went back several times. Um, and through that I found writing partners 
And um, every time I've gone, I've I've remained in touch with at least one or two people that um, I can send my work to, and they send their work to me. And over the years, we've remained friends and traded um, creative work, which has helped me become a better writer because I've also learned how to become a better reader. And um, and so that would be a, something that I would probably recommend. And Tin House um, has become even more accessible in the sense that they offer a lot of scholarships now, um, a lot of different fellowships. They have a lot of, they have winter workshops now, which are a really, really neat opportunity. I've never done a winter workshop, but they have a lot of great educational opportunities. Um, and because I had such a positive experience, that's the one I always bring up. I've never been to a different workshop, actually. <laughs> um, just that one. Um and uh, the other thing that I would probably say to writers starting out is don't don't worry about writing something that you think is terrible. Because when I first read, I, I've, like most writers, I loved doing this as a kid, and I was had a really big imagination, and I still do. And um, when I, as an adult, really wanted to take my own work more seriously, I was disappointed at how terrible it was. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say it's okay to be a bad writer because if you just keep going, you will get better. Um, and so, yeah, uh, just continuing to produce work because practice, um, you can you can purge all of the stuff that sounds awkward if you just keep going. And also working with other writers has helped me um, see where my strengths are, see where my weaknesses are and learn how to compensate for the things that I need to learn a little bit more. So those are probably the biggest pieces of advice I would have. Yeah. I definitely second, second all of those. I I also feel like I sort of got my educational start in writing from going to to summer workshops here and there. And, And I think that, yeah, you meet a few people and you can take those relationships away with you and you learn a lot and, and, you know, it kind of gives you some, some basis to move forward on your own. Yes. Yes. So always the last question of the podcast is is what you're working on now, what what we should look from, from you next. Yes. So I do have a collection that I'm working on. It's almost complete and, um, hopefully it will be published. (laughs) That's always, (laughs) that's always the big hope. Um, I think short stories are great because if you are, um, commuting on a train, for example, and you need something quick, you can jump around and and you don't need to read it in order. Right. So um, hopefully um, someday soon I will have a story collection out into the world. I'm also working on a novel which addresses a lot of the same themes, conservation, um, animal perspectives, um, humanity's impact on our environment, um, but centered from the perspective of an animal that's in its early, early stages. Um, I'm still working on the first draft, but um, those are the two things I have in the creative bank right now. Those both sound so exciting. I certainly hope I will be able to read both eventually. <laughs> yes, yes, me too. Talia Lakshmi Kaluri, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great talking with you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. And and again, I, I, I appreciate so much that you had me on today. I'm so glad you were able to join us. Listeners, you can read Talia's story, The Good Donkey, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.